Hey everyone, we decided to re-air one of our top episodes of 2022 this week, and we know we have a ton of new listeners, so you may have missed this one. I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you back very soon with a bunch of new episodes. I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, or irregular periods, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Sarah Gibson Tuttle, to our show today. Sarah is the founder and CEO of Olive in June, an innovative brand that provides salon quality manis and petties at home, and one of my personal favorites. Before founding the company in 2013, Sarah spent a decade in equity sales trading at Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan. She never thought she'd become an entrepreneur and actually had plans to move to LA to be a talent manager. To prep for meetings, she'd always get her hair done at Dry Bar and was immediately struck by its accessibility and charm. She loved the idea of Dry Bar and wanted to do the same exact thing, but for nails. Although everybody thought her idea was crazy, especially as someone who didn't have any experience in beauty or nails, Sarah was so confident that it would work. She put all her savings into the first flagship store and then the rest is history. Olive and June is now on a mission to democratize nail care with their full suite of at-home Manny and Petty products. In today's episode, we talk all about how life's curveballs can be the biggest gift to setting you on a new path and rediscovering your purpose. We also chat about how she ditched her safe corporate job to start a company with zero business plan and Sarah's biggest tips when it comes to building brand and community, which has been her main focus since day one. Sarah shares how she successfully has pivoted over the years, especially during COVID, and has a very vulnerable and real conversation on what it takes to build a multi-million dollar company from scratch. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm super excited, you know, outside of just being a big fangirl of the brand Olive and June, when you guys had your first retail store, there's so many similarities on our background. So I'm personally excited about this interview and there's so much that our audience is going to learn today. So thank you again for joining us. I'm really excited. I can't believe we've worked at the same places and had some of the same experiences. It's going to be fun. Exactly, exactly. Well, before we go into your story, I wanted to start with a high-level question. You know, you had a very successful career as an equity sales trader, and you decided to leave all of that to start something on your own. And I think a lot of women listening to this podcast, you know, they're in a corporate job, they're doing well, and if anything, that sometimes makes it more difficult to leave that stability. So I'm curious, you know, as someone who has been there before, what do you think is really holding people back from making that leap in their life? I think so many things. I think it's really hard to change your life. I think it's incredibly difficult to imagine what that life is going to be like. And it's hard to to put your yourself, your family, your friends like through it. And so change is incredibly difficult. I also think that sometimes people imagine what it's going to be like 
And so they think that that's going to be like, it's what it is on Instagram. Yeah. I've had people say to me, which I always think is kind of funny and kind of, I don't even know how to respond to it where they say to me, I don't love when you post when you're having a bad day or they like kind of get thrown a little bit because what they believe to be their kind of their life and a life that they wish was different, a life they wish was more entrepreneurial, they don't actually want to see when it's hard because they already perceive their life to be hard. And so I always never know how to respond to that. I think the reality is both lives, right? Whether you're in a job you don't really want to be in or a career you wish you were doing something different. Even if you're me, right, where I'm in a job and a career that I want to pursue, that I'm actively so deeply passionate about, it's still hard. There's still hard days. And I would say, for me, it's much murkier of where this goes, right? I know where I want it to go, and I know where my vision is, but I'm creating something out of nothing and literally trying to forge the path that hasn't been done before. And it was, in a lot of ways, simpler and more obvious when... I was on a more corporate trajectory. So then if it's so difficult, and I totally agree, you know, even as someone who recently launched a business, I'm like, damn, it's so much easier when somebody tells you what to do. And then I hit those goals and I kill it in finance, you know, very similar to your journey. So what is it that pulls you into Olive in June and keeps you going? Because as you mentioned, it can be incredibly hard and we'll go into more detail later. But what is holding you in this journey and gets you excited about it? I think my personal passion for it holds me in it. I think my personal desire to make people really happy and make them feel good about themselves really is what holds me. I, when I worked in finance, just didn't care if the market went up or down. And I think that that's like a fundamental issue with having a job where you're covering hedge funds and you're caretaking their trades all day long and making sure they get the right execution. I mean, we had a lot of fun and I liked my clients and we were personally really good friends. A lot of them are investors, but I wasn't super deeply passionate about the fundamentals of the market. And so this with Olive in June, I really care. I care if your polish is chipping. I care if, you know, creating the perfect formula so your polish doesn't chip. I care about creating a press-on, a set of press-ons that actually is size inclusive and is recycled plastic and has a much smaller impact on the earth than the traditional. I mean, every facet of the business, I care about it and I'm deeply involved in it. So I think it's just finding your passion, but it's, it is, of course, you know, everyone says, I want to find my passion in my job. It's very hard to do. And everybody cleans the bathroom. Everyone's cleaning the toilet, right? In any job, you have that part of your job that you can't stand. And so you just have to know that, I mean, I don't like sitting through financial meetings. I just like to have good gross margin, but yeah, I have to yeah. sit through them and I have to figure out what the levers are and then how do we get to good gross margin? So. Yeah. No, I think you make a really good point in terms of you really having an interest in caring about the industry or what you're up to really does make a difference. And I'm finally living that now. And I'm like, wow, even though there are difficult moments, it just makes it a lot more impactful. For some people, it's the product, right? For some people, it's like, I want to innovate on this product and I want to bring this, this product. And so for some people, it's, it's the clientele, it's the customers, it's making them happy and so on and so forth, right? Everyone finds what really, really drives them. For me, it's actually because it's the consumer, it then trickles down to, of course, then it's the product. Because when the brush is too thick and they can't paint, which happened in the beginning of Olive in June, and the polish is getting applied too thick, basically the coats were applying too thick. And so then the polish wasn't drying and then it was chipping and all the things were happening. We replaced our brush, but I really cared about the customer experience first. And so it trickles back. But for me, for everyone, it's different. 
And if you're going to create something literally out of nothing where you're, where you say to yourself, it doesn't matter if there's been other nail polish companies, we're doing it in a totally different way. Then you have to have something that makes you when you're falling asleep at a whatever time, one in the morning, 11 PM, 8 PM. I wish I was that person that you respond to the email or you send the email or you really like, you're like, I, that's my to do to on my to do list the first thing tomorrow morning, because if you don't care, then or if you care just a little, it becomes a grind, just like your previous job. Oh, I love that. And I could not agree more. I think that's really important what you brought up. You know, if you don't care, like she said, it really becomes more of a grind and the same exact feeling as your job. And I went through that working with my dad, you know, it was more entrepreneurial, but I'm like, shit, I have that same feeling. I'm not passionate about the industry. So I just want to underscore that because it's so, so true. And I wish I knew that, you know, going back a little bit, in those times when you were in finance, you know, you mentioned that you liked the job, you didn't really love it, but you ended up being there for 10 years. You know, what was it about having these reputable jobs and making that shift 10 years later? Like what kept you in that position? And is there anything that you would change looking back? It's such a good question that I don't think anyone's ever asked me. My dad probably kept me in that job. I mean, there was success assigned to that, right? So I wanted to be an actress when I was in college. I was a theater minor. And my dad basically said, I'm not paying for Colgate. If you're going to become an actress, go do it. But that's not, you know, and I really listened to him and really respected him and wanted to, to impress him. And I think as I, I stayed in a job for a decade, I mean, it's definitely, you know, I think I excelled at it. I think I was pretty good at my job. Was I the best person on the trading desk? No. Was I pretty good at it? You know, it didn't get laid off. So it's their success there. Yes. But the reality is, is that, I wanted to impress my dad. I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. I mean, I had 3-1 out of Colgate. It wasn't like I was like a superstar um, on my grades. But I also, I enjoy the competition and not with other people. I've never been externally super competitive. I'm internally incredibly competitive. And so I like being good at something. And when you're good at something and I had pretty demanding clients and I was good at it. And of course you like earning money every year. My dad... I paid for my last year of college. Um, my dad made me pay, pay him back to learn financial lesson. And I think the reality is like, I enjoyed being financially independent and that job made me incredibly financially independent. And it gave me the opportunity to save a lot of money and then open my own business, which is what I did. I used that money and I opened my own business. So, but I think really it was not, you know, disappointing those people that whose opinions I really cared about. And I'm sure there's a couple other people my dad's best friend who I love and think of as a second dad. There was a number of people. But I think once I had the idea for Olive in June, I think I realized I have to do something that's my own and I have to use my client service talents, which I think is one of my superpowers for something that I'm super excited about. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind 
kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening. And now let's get back to today's episode. Yeah. And there's so many skills that come from your corporate background that you are still using today, but it's super interesting to just hear your dad's admiration for that position, because I think that can relate to so many people listening. You know, I've been there. So many people I'm sure listening are in those prestigious jobs because of their family or societal pressures that they have in being there. 10 years in, when you were still in finance, I know that you know you refer to this phase of your life that it was a bit of a roller coaster, right? So much was going on personally, professionally. I would love to hear what was going on at that time because I think it really shook you up into actually making a change in your life, which ultimately turned into Olive in June. Oh yeah, I did like a hat trick of how many things I wanted to change in my life at one time. I was professionally felt pretty stagnant. I was getting promoted. It wasn't it wasn't like an external. It was a it was an internal stagnation of me just feeling like I wake up, I do the same thing every day. This is groundhog day and I have no ambition of really running a group here or any sort of management. I just had I was a straight solid producer. And then personally, I was I think growing tired of New York. I think I felt a little bit like I can't live in this weather constantly every year the seasons. I was I grew up in New York or the suburbs of New York and I I think I was ready for a change and I had big bright-eyed ambitions of what LA was like and what that life what the life here was like and I think a lot of them came true by the way. And then I personally was leaving my husband. So I was who's a wonderful human but was not my human and or my forever human I should say which is an incredibly difficult time in my life where all my friends were getting married. I had just turned 30. We had all gotten married basically around the same time. And I realized this isn't the person I should be with for the rest of my life. So I think my family thought I was having a psychotic break. And I was like, no, I just think that it's time for me to do something new and different. My brother is a really free spirit. And we both have gone through a lot of changes in our life, but he's almost five years older, and he really thinks in broader terms than I do, or he did for a long time. And he really was a big impact and influence on my life of you don't have to live in the East Coast, you don't have to do this job, you don't have to take this path, you can do things differently. And we actually both left finance at the same time, ironically. So he kind of, I think, gave me and really was the only person in my immediate family that gave me the the freedom to think I could do something different. And he's incredibly supportive to this day. There's no bigger cheerleader in my life. In the middle of such a pivotal change in your life, I feel like that support system is so key. So having someone like your brother who's so close to you understand, also worked in finance, was looking to switch his own career is huge. When you were coming to LA, I'd love to hear, you know, I know you were searching for different kinds of jobs. I don't think at the time you knew you were going to start your own business. So kind of walk me through this transition period and what you were doing when you quit finance and you were just kind of dabbling in this new world that you were in. I definitely didn't. I thought I was going to be a talent manager. I really enjoy, I really, really, really enjoy making people happy and feel good. And I was an excellent intern. So I was an intern for four summers in a row, everyone. So I really feel like I excelled at the intern job. And I think a lot of management of people 
is making people happy and like that intuition and that skill set. And it just gets the stakes get higher, the deals get bigger and more real and more impactful. But the reality is your job is to make someone's life good. You basically just like the content changes, but the management is similar. And so I really wanted to come out and just to kind of frame it for everyone. I had massive hedge fund clients, billions, who had billions of dollars under management. And so then managing talent in entertainment, again, same structure of deals, same patience threshold, <laughs> definitely like a lot of personalities. And so I felt like if I can do this, then I can do that. And it's so funny because I ended up interviewing in a bunch of places, met my now husband, who's an agent at a talent agency here, who talked me out of being a manager. And then like two years after we were married, I remember we were out five years ago and I, I said to him, I said, okay, if I was in entertainment, what would I do? And he's like, well, of course you'd be a talent manager. You'd be amazing. <laughs> and I literally was like, what are you talking about? I thought you said, and he was like, well, yeah, I just didn't want you to work in entertainment. So it's a funny thing because I do think that that would be the job. And, and a lot of my friends that I love, that I deeply, deeply love, and some who I was with this week are our managers. So I think Next it's, um, yeah, well, no, I actually think that what they do, I think I had a very simplified view of what they do. I, I think that they are superstars. But yeah, I mean, I think if I was in entertainment, I'd be a manager. I think what the reality of what happened is like I talked out of doing what I thought I was going to do. And then I used to get my hair blown out at dry bar all the time because I was a blowout junkie way before blowouts were like even a thing. I mean, Allie basically created the market because she understood that people were doing this kind of on the sly. And so I fell in love with dry bar and, and, but I've always been a Manny, you know, nail obsessy. And so yeah. I thought I should do this in nails and that's really, and then it's, and then it really took a life of its own. Yeah. And, you know, before I get to that, I wanted to just pause and go back a little bit because I think your transition, which I really appreciate to leaving finance and really digging deep into the world of entertainment and even interviewing for those jobs. I think a lot of women are looking to make that career shift and sometimes are a little hesitant to do so. How did you build those connections to get that those interviews in an entirely new industry that you weren't even in? And by the way, disclaimer, don't let your boyfriend, it's like Elsie on the Hills when she didn't go to Paris, like don't let your boyfriend or your future husband talk you out of your job. PSA, <laughs> if you take nothing else from this podcast. No, it's funny. I really didn't have a lot of ins. What I, but I had one or two friends that were producers or in talent or talent adjacent that understood that I wanted to interview. And so they started just honestly doing informationals with people. And that was the best way to do it, where it was just like, there's no expectation. It's not really an interview for a job. It's me I've had this decade long career and I want to do something different. And what does that look like? And really having, and I took every informational conversation that anyone would have with me. I think a lot of people think that they're going to switch careers or, or even if you're just starting out and you're going to have, like, it's all going to be laid out for you. Take every call, every interview, every conversation, every, everything, because you just don't know. I mean, there was someone who I talked to who is now my friend's husband. And he wasn't super like, you should come do this. He was kind of like, I don't know, I would say like he mildly blew me off, but he did. And we were at a barbecue a few months ago and I was like, remember when I called you? And he was like, oh my God, I do not remember that. Yeah. And I remembered it from, you know, how we're 12 years ago, but that was a dead end. Of course, there are a million like that. And it was no big deal. He just didn't have anything for me. And I wasn't mad about it. I was just like, okay, this isn't going to pan out into something. And then some really turned it into into really big things, you know, into really big conversations. The reality was it, it wasn't, I wasn't really willing at that point to take a total step back 
into being an assistant again, it's really hard after you've worked for 10 years and you're 31 and you're, you know, you're ready to do something. And, and I, but I wasn't, I didn't have any experience to be a coordinator. So I think my husband points it out similar to what my dad did for me, where they gave me a little bit of resistance. The reality is if you allow the resistance to hold you, you shouldn't be pursuing it. Mm. How much resistance did I get for all of in June? Everything. Everyone put resistance. My, my husband told me it wasn't a very good idea. And I basically told him he was crazy. So I think it's okay to get resistance. And I actually think it's really good to get resistance from people that you respect because how you respond to that resistance and you respond to that, that push one way or the other really kind of shows you what path you should be on. Yes. Oh my gosh. There's so many things that just, I want to call out that you talked about, you know, doing that transition into a new industry, those informational interviews are key. I did the same thing, leaving banking, going into tech, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And a year later, one meeting turned into somebody hiring me and then the rest was history. But I think that's super important. And going to Olive in June, you know, you talked about you're in dry bar, you love the concept that Ali created, and you always had an obsession of nails that it just sparked this light bulb moment in your mind. But like you mentioned, your now husband, you know, boyfriend, at the time thought it was a crazy idea. So what was it about this idea? Was it certain women that you spoke to that kind of gave you the confidence to go forward? Like what was that time period like in your life when the idea came? The minute I had the idea, I knew it was good. The other people, mostly women who validated it after helped support the idea. And I don't think I met someone. I think there's like one or two people out of like 300 that were like, I don't really get it. I wouldn't spend a lot of money on my nails. Because the reality was it would be more money than, it was like this middle option, right? It was more money than, than a, kind of a quick mani. And it was obviously way less expensive than the Peninsula Hotel. It was just really like in between affordable luxury option. But people got it. And I think in LA, there is this middle category of affordable luxury. And it's mostly in food, but now it exists in, in other forms. But food and fitness really is where it thrives. But if you think about LA and you think about Sugarfish started here. Umami Burger was really big at the time. Earth Cafe, which is prominently in Entourage. There is that like elevated casual vibe here. And I think that it really shows in the service industry. And there really wasn't that option in nail. And I just like saw it and I just have always loved having my nails done. Fun fact, my dad, who by the way, is clearly a through line of good and yeah. evil. Just kidding. Kind of. He, my dad's the same. Love you, dad. <laughs> I know. It's like, I had a therapist once say, he's like, smoke in a room, right? You can't get it out of any of the furniture. Like, it's just there. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a, it could be good. It could be bad. It depends on if you're smoking at the time, right? So that's funny. But he didn't let me paint my nails when I was a kid because he thought it was super gauche. And so I would sneak nail polish underneath my bed and just paint my nails and then just avoid him. And like, I would have my hands in like cups, you know, like in my little jacket, oh. like avoiding him so he wouldn't see me. But I was obsessed with my nails being painted. And so it all comes through in the therapy sessions, y'all. Don't worry. <laughs> I love it. The real therapeutic journey. Yeah. I mean, talking about therapy, there's so many women that come on my podcast and we always talk about therapy, but how much have you been going to therapy and when did you get involved with it and how important has it been on your own journey personally and professionally? Oh, I mean, I've been going to therapy since college. I mean, yeah, I've had some pretty, it's a, it's a podcast for a different day, but I, I had, know, but I had some pretty traumatic episodes that like really kind of pushed me to therapy, or at least one did. And I think that I don't think I realized how good therapy would be. And then you go and you're like, 
oh, this is a place where, by the way, my therapist now won't even like let me ask how she's doing. I'm like, how are you? She's like, good. Now let's go on to you. I'm like, no, no, but like, how are you? But I've gone, I've been in and out of therapy since I was 17. And I think I was really lucky in college that it was included in tuition. And I really like appreciated that with Colgate. I think they really understood what kind of your maturation is in college and what you need. And so it was a deeply needed and, and super appreciated resource. So I think it's good for everyone. I think if you think you don't need it, it's always the days you think you don't need your session. You're like, I'm going to cancel and you go and you're like falling your eyes out. So I am totally of the belief that we are all changing and evolving and growing and hopefully becoming better versions of ourselves every day. And we just have to keep, I mean, I, I love, I haven't gone to Hoffman or any of those, those programs, but I wish I, you know, had the time to do them all. Like, I think the reality is we can only try to be better versions of ourselves and more kind and generous versions of ourselves with others as much as possible. Just from my own experience starting a business, I feel like it's been the biggest opportunity to learn more about myself, like things that I didn't even know existed, my mindset, limitations I have, stories I tell myself that I can definitely see, you know, whether it's programs I was working with a coach or even therapy being a huge deal and just even my success in the business. So that's, you know, appreciate you sharing your own experience there. I think my divorce made me incredibly empathetic. I don't think that I was the most, I think I was a kind and loving human prior my friends will say wonderful things about how, what I've done for them, but which is very sweet. But I think there's like a level of, there's like a really good, for anyone who's had a massive breakup or an engagement breaking off or divorce with kids or without, there's a grounding in that and a, and a reset that it gave me. And there was, there's a ton of judgment that people will have. And if you can see, if you can see it through to the other side, you really, I think, become a more generous and empathetic person. And I was already really focused on people and making people happy because I'm, I'm an Enneagram too. So it's like all I can think about is like making people like me. And then plus therapy just made me probably the reason why I answer every DM and I'm like, what do you mean? Like your press on popped off after like four days. Okay. Like, let me talk about how much glue you're putting on. I mean, I'm in my DMs more often than I should be. Like I literally have to start setting boundaries for myself because I really, I care so deeply about others. So but I think all these things are good things and they really, they lead you to the place that you should be. So. Yes. No, I, I love that. And going back to Olive in June, when the idea came up a little bit, you know, did you have any fears or deal with any imposter syndrome when you were looking to officially launch and put your life savings in the first store? Any hesitations in that step? Constantly, constantly. And I still have them. I mean, it's, you were, <laughs> always a little paranoid and always a little bit anxious about, you know, you're putting something in the world. You're also like, it's like an art installation. You're presenting something that's like coming from your heart. But also I think there's always fear. We've de-risked the business in some ways because we've gotten bigger. And so, and we, we understand, and we've actually launched a bunch of innovation, right? Which now it becomes, okay, launch new colors or new designs or new press-ons. And so it's just, it's a bit different. Although we have a lot of innovation coming still, which always gives me a ton of anxiety. But I remember saying to my, to my husband, I want out on this like a weekend. And he was like, you're on the roller coaster. Like you're strapped in, like there's no, you can't get off now. But I think it, then the fear gets, well, how can I grow it at this rate? Or can I keep growing it at this rate? Or how do I, and it gets harder to grow, right? I mean, you've acquired all the easy customers and it becomes the harder customers, but I like the challenges of it. I enjoy working. I enjoy achieving and, and I enjoy figuring out problems. And so 
if it was easy, I, I think I would be bored of it. I mean, I'm not bored of reality TV and that's pretty easy, but I think that's probably the only <laughs> exception in my life. I enjoy the struggle a little bit, which probably is like also some deep seated issues I should work out in therapy. No, I mean, the struggles are there, but at least like the highs and when you're satisfying those customers and getting those big wins, I don't even know that feeling. It's like hard to even explain, right? Like you have the lows and really high highs. It's the best. Yeah. I mean, I just get excited when we, someone posted today, they posted their Manny in a color that I do not wear. By the way, it is a best-selling color and it is a color I do not wear, which is always the way it is. It's always like whatever the color is of the collection that I am the least into, it's the bestseller. Which is which makes me so happy because we're not creating this. This isn't like SGT's polish line. Like this is, you know, it's a line for as many people as possible. But they posted this color and they just got engaged. And they posted it. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. This person loves our product so much that they are so excited about the Manny they had when they got engaged. And it's a color that of course I do not wear. Like and it's a bestseller. It's great. This lives without me. You know, like hopefully I was the kindling and I was I am can be the gasoline now, but I am not the fire. The community is the fire. And that's an incredible thing. So, so the fears kind of, they morph into something else. Something different. And one thing that you just brought up right now is talking about community. And I always think it's interesting when you do bring a product to life and I'm beginning to see this and it just kind of builds on its own, that community slowly grows. And that's always been a big focus for you from day one of even just opening the store before you had an entirely extensive product line. So I'd love to get your thoughts on how you think about community and when did you start seeing really that momentum kind of build up if, if you did through the years of being with Olive and June? Yeah. And community has become a buzzword, which is, yeah. it has never been a buzzword to me, right? We had an in real life experience. So our community were real people coming in our salons and giving real feedback positively or negatively. And so this community and what people believe it, their digital community is, real stickiness is different than just having a bunch of followers on Instagram. So we look at it as how are we making people happy every day? How are we inspiring them and empowering them and delighting them? And what are we creating? And also creating space for the community to have relationships with each other. Again, this is not the SGT show. This is our community, this is all of in June that is for our community. And so whether that be a private Facebook group for our members or really like engaging heavily in our DMs or we go live about four or five times a week, we have Zooms which are for our master classes so people can really learn whatever level they're on for their manis, they can really learn new tips and tricks to get even better, real content, real education, videos. So we, we give a lot to, to build this. And we're really excited about in real life in the future, whenever that world comes back. But the few things we've done have been really explosive because people are excited to get together. But it's just been natural for me because as someone called Olive and June, the salons, they said, this is our version of Cheers. And which is a, for those who are too young, that was a TV <laughs> show about a bar that people used to hang out at. But I just think it was true. And so if you can give people a place to connect, there is a lot of pain in this world. And if we can give mm. people a little bit of joy, right? It does not matter who you are, where you live, what you believe in. Like nails can be something that's very universally shared and delighted in. And we just like to be a very small piece of that. You were saying just the importance of bringing joy. And some people might think to themselves like nails, right? It's such a quote unquote saturated market. How does she differentiate 
herself in the business. And I think as a user of it, and I'm a big fan, there's a lot that I can talk about, but like every little thing is so thoughtful in the processes and even like the poppy, right? So they created, I mean, you could probably talk more, but I'd love to hear about the poppy and your nail polish because I do think it's very unique and it actually lasts unlike many other brands. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that so much. We, again, it goes back to how much I care about the product. And I really, we went through about seven manufacturers that we tested all of their formulas. We iterated with them. We finally found a manufacturer in Korea that really worked with us for over two years on creating this incredible formula that's, that we now own and it's protected and it's, and we source certain ingredients that really, really, really make sure that that manicure, that that paint really lasts when applied correctly. And so I think, and the poppy is just is a patented tool that you can pop on. It's a silicone rubber handle and you can pop it on our bottles or other, most other bottles um, and it stabilizes your non-dominant hand. So it doesn't look like one hand, my seven-year-old painted for you. So that's, that's the whole, you know, that, that was the idea behind the poppy and the Manny system being kind of the system in, in a box that everything you need to get a salon perfect mani at home, you, you receive, right? You have all the tools and nothing more, nothing less. But I think that back to your question, I think that when we think about the experience of the consumer and how they're going to be interacting with the products, we wanted to make sure that we simplified it as much as possible and really delivered upon what they would need. And we had so many years of experience we had worked with manicurists for years. We also brought in industrial designers and engineers. And we really thought to ourselves, how do we give people the right tools, the right products, but, but also like we kind of cut back on things that people don't need. And that really started to inform our choices. Like we don't have cuticle nippers because you, you shouldn't be cutting your own cuticles. And your manicure shouldn't really be either unless you really need it or you really want it. Because it kind of the secret is you don't really need it. So we push them back and, you know, and we really we really encourage our community to do that. But it comes down to, I do not want to put a product in the world that already exists. That's not interesting to me. That's not exciting in my journey. When we started to decide if we we're going to do press-ons or not, I mean, we were getting requests for them and they're, they're the other huge part of the market, right? It's polish and press-ons, but, or the at-home market, I should say. But, but I wasn't sold on it. I wasn't like, oh, we have to do it because we can get money there. That wasn't that that's not exciting to me at all. We could, there's a lot of things we could do. We could have lipstick if we really wanted to do like an easy category that like, you know, you just like launch lipstick and people like love lipstick. Well, I'm not going to do that. So we really looked at how can we make press-ons different? What can we do? And that's when we really looked at it and said, I want them to be size inclusive. I want them to have, which they have 21 sizes, which blows my mind. But then it's like, okay, well, if there's a lot of sizes, sizes, then that's a lot of waste. Okay, let's make them recycled, right? Let's make them recycled plastic. So they're 94% PCR. So, you know, it's things like that. Like we really try to focus on, okay, well, most press-ons are the same shape and the same length. Well, we're going to do four shapes, four lengths. Like people have different size. People want different nails. And so really catering to what we thought, what we think the consumer would want in this like ideal world, if the consumer could have everything. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, you have so many amazing innovative products right now, but when you open up that first retail location, was that the dream for you to kind of scale with at-home care? Or how did that evolution kind of shift for you and the strategy of Olive and Dune? No, the strategy was dry bar for nails. It was retail locations and everyone said do products. And I was like, nah, I want to like hang out with people all day. And I think what happened was we realized, of course, we, we did a deep dive in the market and like got real data, but 
the hunch was, wait a second, every year our prices have to go up, right? And we're at some point, we're not going to be this like affordable luxury. We're just going to be luxury. And how do I actually democratize the salon manicure? It's not with a $30 manicure. That's not really democratizing the salon manicure. The way to democratize is, and if you look at other beauty companies, I mean, I, I am super inspired by what Chris Ness has done, what Drew did with Flower Beauty. That's true democratization of, I'm going to take what I know. I mean, with Kristen, she is an incredible hairstylist. And she knew all of what she thought she could go on those products. And she made them available when they first launched Target. They were $10 products. And they're probably 12 now or 14, whatever they are now. But like it was true knowledge of what, what should go in those products and actually help people with their hair. What Drew did with Flower, where Drew had like how many decades had she had makeup? Right. And she was able to literally take these great products and make them accessible. And they launched in Walmart. So I really look at brands that make it possible for everyone everywhere at a price inclusive mass price point. To me, it's that's the gold standard. And that's really what I've what I've tried to achieve with Olive in June. And and it's why, sure, we could have a higher price point, but that's not the point. The point is to be available everywhere. So people can be wearing the best quality nails, whether it be polish or press-ons, for a price that they can afford. What I appreciate about your own journey is, you know, you started Olive and June with one concept and one strategy, thinking you'd only open up retail stores. And once you're in business, you realize that the opportunity is completely different or you shift your perspective on that. And that's why I think it's so important for people just to start, because once you start the business, that's when you really are learning about everything than just conceptualizing and trying to figure out what's the right next step and how do I make this perfect without even actually bringing it to life. So I just want to highlight that because I think that's so, so key. You have to have a big vision because if you can't, I mean, unless it's a lifestyle business, right? But if you want a big company, you have to have a big vision, but then don't be afraid to pivot from it when using the kind of whatever you've built to shift into something else makes more sense. I mean, I didn't know there was going to be a global pandemic, right? So we were launching products well before the pandemic, but then the pandemic hits and my salon business goes to zero. Well, the reality was, is that I had to make some really hard decisions in 2020 one of them was the closest lawns and it was heartbreaking, but I had to focus on the part of the business that I could control and that I could grow. And so that we stayed in business. And so the brand, this beloved brand could stay a beloved brand. Yeah. And I know during COVID, you guys pivoted so quickly, you know, you had your direct to consumer going. And I think I read that you did like seven weeks of daily lives on Olive in June. I mean, I have this weekly podcast. That's like a side project. I'm like, oh my God, that's a lot of content. I mean, I don't even know where to start, but how is that experience and really navigating the company during such a uneasy and difficult time? I think we just really understood that our, our community was going through what we were going through, which was a lot of, I don't know if it's hard to remember 2020 yeah, because like, every year feels like a decade, but it was sheer panic. I was like one step away from windexing my vegetables you know like I was like we were so scared and I think that when we were going through that I think it wasn't a marketing thing of like let's just go live so they like buy our stuff it was of course our sales were ramping very quickly because of the fact that there was this pandemic and people couldn't go to salons but I also think we understood and deeply understood our community enough to know and we were getting the messages that they were feeling really lonely and feeling really sad at this moment. And so we thought, you know what, let's go live. We had a lot of fun with it. We did a lot of education. We also had a lot of fun with it. I mean, I had a lot of my 
some of my friends with massive followings who had never painted their nails before. And I was like, come live with me and you're just going to paint your nails on camera. And people were like, what? What do you, okay, let's just do it. And everybody was kind of like, there was no agenda. It was just kind of like, let's just do this. And it was a lot of fun. And people love that. <laughs> we had so much fun. And it really, you know, we were one of the first to go live that often. So I think mm-hmm. I literally, we won an award for it. It was so funny because I was like, wow, it's like you win the marketing campaign award for something you actually didn't set out for it to be a campaign. I mean, I think that's the best part about yes. Olive in June is that it's been this very organic journey. And it's about all of our hearts. It's really not about, of course, you want financial success. I have investors. So I do understand I got to send out those quarterly financials. But I really, we really do it from a place of, this is like a true passion for us. Mm-hmm. And you're always thinking about the community. And like you mentioned, you know, it was fun to go live. It didn't feel like a daunting task because you just wanted to connect with the community. And I think that's huge. And anybody can really be doing that in their businesses today and really build that organic growth. And, you know, you talked about investors. I'd love to hear your approach to fundraising because you didn't go down the typical VC path starting out. So I would love to just kind of hear, you know, any mistakes that you did and what really worked for you or didn't work for you when you were fundraising after that first store when you proved out the concept. Yeah, absolutely. I've raised three rounds of funding and they have, they've all been pretty small, relatively speaking. And they've been from mostly friends and family, a few family offices and some small VC checks. But we, in the beginning, raising for salons wasn't exactly what VCs wanted to invest in. So that wasn't really an option. And then as we started contemplating the product line, we really did have a lot of really great productive conversations, but there had been a couple of companies in the space who had not worked. And so VCs were super trepidatious of if nails could be as big of a beauty category as hair or makeup. And so it was super frustrating because I had this big vision for what it could be and people just didn't have to be able to just didn't see it. So we ended up going a bit of a different route, which is much more of like when they say friends and family, it's it's really friends of friends of friends of friends. And it's a really hard way to raise. But we have brought in some of the most strategic people that are VPs, SVPs, C level of businesses that are currently that they're currently working. And they've been the best people to go to and say, What do you think about this? Have you done this? Like, can you help me with that? And so I feel like our cap table, while it's quite big, is just, I, I would put it up against any VC any day based on if I need to get a call to happen, I can. And I learn so much. I, I find that my cap table is more full of coaches than it is managers or owners. And so I love that because sometimes I need my batting coach and sometimes I need my general coach and sometimes I need my spiritual coach. But it's not, it's not like an owner of a team. They're all coaches and they're all incredibly helpful. And I've always been curious, and this is just a question that, you know, I personally, I'm always curious how the structure works, but with these investors, is it a type of relationship you build where it's like you have a call once a month with some of them? Is it just open dialogue if you need them? You know, they're like, just shoot me an email. Like, how's that relationship with these investors slash coaches of yours? It's different with everyone. Most of them are pretty passive. I can self-select it. I think that's one of the things that when you don't have a traditional VC leading around, you're able to set the terms of what kind of communication and comms you're going to set up. But with probably, I would say, 10 to 15 of my investors, 
I'm in pretty regular communication, whether it be text, email, calls on a monthly basis. So, and some of my investors, one of my, the biggest fund that's in all of in June has said to me, make your one or two asks per year. They're just, they're huge, right? They've got a lot of things going on. They're in all of June because they, they love the concept and they're there, but they lead a bunch of rounds. So they're focused elsewhere. And I can make that call once or twice a year. And every time I make it, they go out of their way to be super helpful. So I think it's just, it, it really depends on the investor, but I'm very, very lucky because I've heard some crazy stories and I really do. I really would stack my cap table up against anybody else's. Yeah. And I think, you know, you were very selective of who you brought in. And if I remember correctly, doing some research on you, the early days of when you were fundraising for that first round was really tough for you. You know, you've never done it before. And I think you weren't reaching out to those, the right friends of friends. So what really shifted in your strategy? Was it people who are in the space or were you reaching out to more people who kind of knew nails or women who understood the concept? Like what really worked for you to get those really great investors? Because like, you're right, we have a lot of women that have come on here that don't really have that love for every single person on their cap table. Yeah. So someone gave me advice and I, I don't think I really appreciated it at the time, but one of my investors who ended up introducing me to like the pocket of investors that ended up putting in the, the largest checks in the first round said to me, you need to find some local LA investors whose wives will love Olive and June. And I really didn't understand that because I thought, well, anybody could understand that I'm going to be the next dry bar. So I'm going to be everywhere. But the reality was, is that a lot of investors are men, vast majority, and they have wives, a lot of them, who will have walked into this salon or seen the salon or had friends who go into the salon that'll say, it's the best salon I've ever been to. And truly, that was the best advice. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but it ended up being exactly right because then the people who came in that's exactly what happened. And they might have thought it was a crazy concept, but the most important person in their life said, it's amazing. She's amazing. We should do it. And by the yeah. way, that is held true with, I mean, I can think of one investor right now who cracks me up on a weekly basis where he was like, I didn't know, but you know, <laughs> Meredith told me to do it. So we did it. And they're like some of my favorite investors because you know, they understand what they don't understand. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. The fact that the amount of funding that goes to women is 2%, give or take. And by the way, the vast majority of that is to white women, which is just so disheartening that not only that women of color are so disproportionately disadvantaged in funding, but also that we have this setup where, wait a second, so 98% of funding is going to men. Well, half this planet is women and women understand how to solve women's problems. So why in the world are we not funding that appropriately? We're having men solve our problems. Well, that's just doesn't make any sense. So it's nothing against men. I think they should just get half the funding. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, at least they are open to, they don't know what they don't know. And at least they're open to their wives, giving them feedback because they don't do their nails. They don't understand. So I appreciate their perspective and hopefully, you know, we can change the narrative and I don't know if you are investing in any, I you am, know, women I do. you are, how fun. I know. Well, some angel checks, I don't have any money right now yeah. because <laughs> I, all my money's in my business, but I get really excited. I get really, really yeah. excited. And I also am a person who takes uh, so many calls, right? I do. Mm. And I, Try to deprior. I try to prioritize it outside my business, right? So I don't do it during business hours, but I'll do it on the weekends or at nights. And I really, really try to work with women founders because I'm like, we deserve to have the support and the generosity that men are giving other men. And so yes. I, I really, I'm trying to change the narrative. I mean, I'm just one person, but I think, I think all women founders feel this way, right? Where it's like, female founders, like, how do we support 
other endeavors that are actually supporting what we want and need in the world. And so hopefully we can change it. That's obviously my, one of my missions. Yeah, I have goosebumps just hearing you. I mean, my small way as I'm building my business, which is my full-time job, is this podcast. If I can like elevate women's voices and make people understand this, the behind the scenes of what it takes to build a business. But similar to you, like my biggest motivation to create that success in my business is to give back, inspire other women, have more badass women entrepreneurs building like big sustainable companies. So I love that you're in the position to be giving back and doing small angel checks because I'm sure it's super fulfilling. I mean, I always say I'm like, the check is small, but like, you can always email me, you can always call me. And like, hopefully that's a bigger impact. We all have to have our impact in whatever way we can. Which is so huge as someone who's so early in their business, just having someone's mentorship and guidance is more than the check. So I'm sure it's game changing that you're spending time giving back in that that way. And I want to shift gears a little bit, read some of your posts on Instagram and listen to a few of your interviews where you've talked a lot about you know, you're very passionate about Olive and June. Clearly you're a wife, clearly you're a mother as well. And these are all your loves. And I don't have kids yet, but I always love to ask, you know, how do you set up your life where you are balancing all these moving pieces? And you also have an amazing friend group as well, which I know is very near and dear to you. I think it just takes a lot of calendaring and really understanding what's important to you. I think Men historically have done a better job of this where they're like, this is what I care about. This is what I focus on. And I think as women, we, again, this is just a generalization, but I think we can often spread ourselves and say yes to everything. And I'm definitely that way. So I, I can only speak for myself, but I'm definitely that way. I like, I bristle when I get this question from a man because I'm like, oh, of course you're asking how I balance my life. But from a woman, I'm like, oh, I understand because we're alike and we try to say yes to everything. And so I think the reality is, is that I am ruled by my calendar. I section all of my days out and whether it be my personal or professional life. And I really just try to be present in the moments that I can with whoever I'm with. And I also like to give myself, you know, it's funny because one of my best friends was just telling me how she just had, had a baby and she was like, remember when you were breastfeeding and you couldn't leave your house? And I literally joked with her. I was like, no, I was a bad mom. And I gave my daughter a bottle. And she was like yelling at me for saying that. I was like, I'm just kidding, but I'm, I'm giving you free license to use a bottle and leave yeah. your house. I think I really try to be, I try to also give myself a little bit of room and remind myself that I was, if I was working in finance, I would be home with my child max of 30 minutes a day and on the weekends. And because I have the job that I have, and I, and by the way, and I'm not commuting right now. So even more so right this minute in this moment in time, I get to be home for two hours in the morning before I kind of really start work. Although my team would say that I start work at 6am, but, and I do take some calls before she wakes up. And then at night I get to put her down and I get to go to tomorrow when she has her, her, she's reading her book that she's created school. I get to go middle of the day to that. If I worked on a trading desk, you could not leave that trading desk. You would not go to those events. And so my life, and of course, will I work later tomorrow night because of it? Yes, I will. It's the reality. The work has to get done. But I get to have a flexible schedule. And mm. and that is like, I just think that, that if for someone who wants to work as hard as I want to work, it's my goal. It's like, it's amazing to be able to make it flexible. So I also think it's about don't prioritize everything. Yeah. Prioritize the friends that are really good to you and your kids when and if people have them and your relationship and your family and just let the rest of it fall away. And 
the power of no, saying no is a hard thing for me, but I'm learning boundaries. So every day I get a little bit closer to being able to actually like say it more, more often. Yeah. And I also don't love that question when people are like, how do you balance it all? But I always think my biggest fear. I only don't like it when it's men asking. Cause I'm like, oh, I'm like, so you don't have to balance it. Like, it's always like, how do you juggle it? I wish they should ask men that. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm always like, how do you juggle it? I don't know. Exactly. But I said it because I, because I have said publicly when, when men have asked me, I've been like, well, how do you do it? So I get a little, I get a little sassy, but do you, no, I do. I'm glad you say I that. I do. Some celebrity said it in a way that made me, empowered me to say it. It wasn't like I came up with that very quippy comeback. But from women, I understand it because we're trying to do everything. And I also yeah. have an incredible team that they're fantastic. I also have two assistants. I mean, yeah, no, that's helpful. I literally say for the flowers tomorrow, my assistant will make sure that I have flowers to go. And that's, while that might seem to someone like, oh, she wouldn't get her own flowers for her own child. It's like, the reality is I can't do everything. So I have to start deciding when to delegate. And what matters is that I'm sitting in that room and my child sees me there and she feels good after. And that's what matters. And it took me a long time to get to that point because I was the person who did everything myself. No, I'm sure. And I mean, this is a whole nother topic, which, you know, I'm sure we can talk about even in another podcast, but even creating that team. And I know you were super involved, right? You were, I think, doing the Instagram for years, years. even when all of in June. So how was that experience building out the team and giving off a little bit of your responsibilities? I'm sure it was tough, like you mentioned. Well, it's hard to admit, right? It even like, I don't like to admit that I've given anything up. I don't like to admit that someone else gets the flowers from my child. I don't like to admit that I don't run every, I don't answer every DM at all of in June. I'm a person who likes to do everything and I don't like to give up. It's not even the control. It's almost been ingrained in me that I have to do everything. But if I do that, then for example, our first ever collaboration was with an amazing woman whose name is Nabella. For those who don't know her, she started a community called Ziba and she's an activist. She's an influencer. She's just the most incredible, one of the most incredible humans I've ever met. When Nabella and I started talking about collaborating, it was calls and meetings and a number of different moments in time where we really sat down and brainstormed what we could do together. And it took months, right? And then we launched our first ever collaboration and we were so, so incredibly proud of it in 2020. I can't do that if I'm doing everything else. Yeah. And I couldn't have been present with my phone down, phone off, focused on Nabella. What should we, how can we create something? She created a community her community is called Ziba and it's all about inclusivity and making people feel like their best selves. And she has clothing and there's no sizes. And it's just like everything she's done has just been, she's just truly like one of my guiding lights in this world. And so it's like, you have to remember if I was going to get the flowers then I couldn't take yeah. the Nabella call. The reality is, is that it, while it is hard to admit, I don't do everything anymore. I also have to focus on the emails that poured in after we mm -hmm. did that collab and what people said about feeling seen in this world when they saw Nabella and that's who we chose our first collaboration with. And so for me, I have to remember that you can't do everything and you have to set up your life so that you can do the things that are the most important things to you, to your business, to the world and, the biggest, and, and have the biggest impact. So I try to give myself a ton of perspective because I have those moments of feeling like, why is somebody else sending the calendar invite? I should be doing that. 
about it. I'm laughing because I feel the same way. And I don't know if that's like our finance background where we're so hands-on. And my husband reminds me, he's like, Yasmin, you need time to think and do things that no one else could do except you. And I'm like, but I could do that. He's like, it's not the best use of your time. So it's a good reminder. And I'm glad you're bringing it's it up. Very it's very hard. People. It's, but yeah, we it's have hard. to push ourselves because otherwise then you don't, the big picture stuff, it just doesn't come. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, Sarah, I so appreciate you taking the time. I probably, I can't even believe the hour went by so quickly, but this was so much fun. Thank you for joining us. I had so much, such a good time. You do such a good job. These questions were really, were really, oh, someone's, at, see, someone's at my door. Here we Perfect are. Perfect timing. Are. <laughs> Definitely let your community know they can find us at Olive and June on our website, oliveandjune.com, but also at Target. So we are nationwide as of this year, which is so exciting. That's huge. We'll put all of that in our show notes so everybody knows where to find you guys. And I'm so excited for them to try you guys out. I know. Definitely tag me in your manis, y'all. I want to see them. I want to see how pretty they are. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.